I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. Right. Well, my guest today is Dr. Thomas Plant, a professor of psychology at Santa Clara University and adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's a scholar in residence of the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, which is the largest applied ethics center in the world. He's served as the psychology department chair acting dean of the School of Education and the director of the Applied Spirituality Institute at Santa Clara University. He's the past president of the Society for the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality for the APA, the American Psychological Association. His master's and and PhD in psychology were earned at Kansas University. I might mention that again later. And he completed his clinical internship and postdoctoral fellowship in clinical and health psychology at Yale University. Dr. Plant has authored and edited 25 books, including two specifically that I'll point out. He was editor for a book, Contemplative Practices in Action, Spirituality, Meditation, and Health, and Religion, Spirituality, and Positive Psychology in 2012. And that, that should give you a little bit of an idea of where some of his interests lie. He blogs regularly with the publication Psychology Today in writing about topics like hope, spirituality, and guilt and forgiveness. He's published more than 200 scholarly professional journal articles and book chapters, and Dr. Plant has appeared regularly on some media outlets that you've heard of, like Time Magazine, CNN, NBC, PBS, The New York Times, USA Today, BBC, NPR, and others. Dr. Plant maintains a practice in Menlo Park, California, where he lives with his wife, Lori, who's also a psychologist. Dr. Plant, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to be part of your program. Dr. Plant, could you tell us a little bit more about your origin story, maybe a little bit about the journey that led you to the field of psychology and your interests in religion and spirituality, and eventually teaching at a Jesuit university and some of the work that you've done with the Catholic Church? Well, sure. Happy to do so. Well, first off, um, I grew up in the great state of Rhode Island, uh, and Rhode Island uh, was uh, is one of the most Catholic states in the country in terms of the percentage of the population who are Roman Catholic. Uh, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Louisiana, and I believe New Jersey are are the are, have the most Catholics. And certainly, growing up as a youngster, uh, I, pretty much everybody I knew was Roman Catholic. They were either Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, French Canadian Catholic, or Portuguese Catholic. Hmm. And we all envied the Italian Catholics because their food was by far the best. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, I was with the Irish and the uh, French Canadians, and uh, and our food was nearly not as good as the Italians. But my whole world was kind of the Catholic world. Uh, and uh, so I've always been interested in uh, uh, religion and spirituality and things like that, mostly from uh, the influence of, uh, of my growing up in, uh, in the great state of Rhode Island uh, to an Irish and French-Canadian Catholic family. Um, and then in terms of being psych- into psychology, it's kind of a funny story. I didn't know any psychologists growing up. I come from a very blue-collar 
working class family and so forth. Uh, so I didn't know any psychologists. Certainly my parents weren't uh, psychologists or in that business. But during the 1970s, for those of you of a certain age may remember a famous uh, television show, a popular television show called the Bob Newhart Show. Oh, yeah. And Bob Newhart was, you know, a comedian and he played a psychologist uh, on television during the 1970s or so. And I remember watching this show, and as someone who had always been nosy and interested in human behavior, I thought, wow, you know, you can have a career or a job talking to people about their problems. That sounds really great to me and much more appealing than, you know, my father was a, uh, worked in construction and was always, you know, so tired and so, you know, doing manual labor. And I said, wow, you, you can actually have a career where, where you, you can just sit in, a, in an office in a jacket and tie and, and, and talk to people about their problems and help people in that way. This sounds just terrific. So, <laughs> so, that, so from the time I was in junior high school, I decided I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. The, the funny story that, um, about that is um, that uh, fast forward to the year 2000, and Bob Newhart was the uh, commencement speaker at our Uni Santa Clara University's uh, commencement. And his youngest daughter uh, was graduating from Santa Clara that year. And uh, long story short, um, the university president let me host him for the day, uh, introduce him at the ceremonies, uh, hood him for his honorary doctorate, and most importantly, give him, an, uh, since I was chair of the psychology department at that time, give him an honorary license to practice psychology. <laughs> uh, so, so it kind of uh, came all, uh, full circle in that regard. And then um, in terms of um, doing research and clinical practice and so forth in this area, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, um, I, when I was going through very secular uh, education, you know, I mean, in terms of college and grad school, uh, I went to college at Brown University, even though it's a it's in the great state of Rhode Island. It's a very secular uh, university. Um, not a very, not a whole lot of engaged practicing um, Catholics uh, there, at least at the time. And then uh, University of Kansas, which you mentioned earlier, again a secular place. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then my clinical internship and postdoc at Yale, also very secular. And, uh, you know, be, being interested in religion and spirituality was not really uh, something that was encouraged. And so I waited. I did research on the psychological benefits of aerobic exercise uh, and had a lab uh, with treadmills and bikes and all of that for many years until I was tenured and became a full professor. And then I could say, great, now I can start doing what I really <laughs> want to do, which is spirituality. Um, and then finally, um, I would say that uh, in the uh, when uh, in the 1980s, I, I was being I was asked to do some evaluations for sex offending cleric. And uh, one thing led to another. And before you know, you start doing a lot of those. Um, and uh, and uh, this is long before the Boston Globe situation um, mm -hmm. in 2002. And then uh, and then before you know, you got swept up into that whole world. And so um, I, I've been very active uh, in terms of uh, evaluating people who are accused of sexual misconduct in the church, as well as um, screening applicants for seminary and uh, and um, being on committees about child protection in the Catholic Church. Sure, sure. Well, and of course, if we think about psychology as the study of the mind and, and human behavior, 
there's a lot of overlap between a person's mental and psychological health. And well, you mentioned the the psychological benefits of aerobic exercises, one of your early research endeavors. And then, of course, the the importance of of spirituality and religion and in, in, in myriad mental health benefits for uh, for people who practice um, spirituality and uh, and observe various various religions. Of course, like anything, I guess it can go the wrong way. But could, could you tell us a little bit more about um, kind of how when when you, you talk about the spirituality or the psychology of spirituality and religion, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about a bunch of things. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, um, it's, a, um, it's a broad area, the psychology of spirituality and religion. Um, and it's, it's very multifaceted. And basically, the thinking is, is that back in 1977, in an, uh, an article in the, in the journal Science, very prestigious you know, journal, mm-hmm. by a guy named George Engel of, at the University of Rochester, talked about how you know, we really needed what he called a biopsychosocial model of human behavior and human flourishing and health and wellness and illness and all of that. That medicine had been so, um, you know, biologically driven that they kind of forgot that uh, much of health and wellness and uh, so forth has to do with more than just, you know, uh, neurons firing and, and cells replicating and things like that. And so he advocated what's called the biopsychosocial model. Then myself and some others said, hey, look, you know, it's actually a biopsychosocial spiritual model mm. that that, you know, humans have biological needs, psychological needs, social needs, but also spiritual needs. And uh, and there seems to be plenty of research to support that. And so much of spirituality and religion has psychological elements to it in the sense that, you know, we're all trying to understand the world and spirituality and religion helps us to do that. We're also, also trying to find our way through um, challenging times you know, uh, you, you, being human means you're going to, as the Buddhists say, that there's suffering, uh, there's mm-hmm. dissatisfaction by sort of definition. And we all have to cope and deal with that. Uh, we have to make sense of the world. We have to try to have some structures in place to help us understand, you know, what's going to happen maybe after we die or when our loved ones die. And we also need community support and rituals to help us to get through, uh, you know, life's various events. And religion and spirituality offer all of that and more. And so we kind of see people as these biopsychosocial spiritual creatures. And that if you don't um, satisfy some of those needs in all those areas, then people will um, die on the vine. You know, mm. they, um, they'll, 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 uh, they'll shrivel up. And uh, and so we we want to be kind of mindful and attentive to all these facets of the whole person. Well, so that, and that's fascinating because uh, well, you you touched on kind of what happens if we neglect that spiritual facet or spiritual dimension uh, to to life. Because in the military, we we kind of well, we we talk about how we run toward the sound of the guns, right? And and or. In the National Guard, we could just as likely be called out to respond to a wildfire or uh, an earthquake or a, or a hurricane. Uh, back in 2005 with Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, we sent uh, hundreds of soldiers from the Oregon National Guard to Louisiana to help with the recovery efforts from Hurricane Katrina. So what's if we neglect that spiritual 
uh, part of of our lives. Um, what are what are we potentially missing out on, or uh, maybe what's the what what's the danger? You know, I think there is danger to tell you the truth because I think what ends up happening is that people kind of get lost. They kind of like you know um, have have crises in terms of meaning and purpose, and um, they may have existential challenges. Um, and I would imagine that people, particularly in the military, because um, people in the military are called to do all sorts of very diverse things. And some of those things um, are, are pretty scary to do. Uh, and that, the, you know, people not in the military may be really fearful to do. Um, and uh, they're called to do all sorts of things. And during the, that process, you know, some bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people are going to die. People are going to be um, um, uh, lost. People are going to um, uh, be really in terrible crisis. And, um, and uh, those who are, are first responders or people who witness this or experience this or participated in any of this stuff have to ask themselves the question, you know, what is this all about? What does it mean? How do I understand the world? How do I understand others? Uh, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? And spirituality and religion help um, help to at least address some of those fundamental questions uh, that are likely to emerge. And um, without a kind of attention to spirituality, then you're you know, that, you know then it's sort of like uh, well, what do you got? <laughs> and and I think people ultimately will just um, flounder hmm. uh, in terms of. Um, trying to answer some of those kind of important questions. You know, the religious spiritual traditions have been at it for a lot of years. Oh, <laughs> you right. know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of years of wisdom. Now, they don't always get it right, of course. We all, you know, we know that each of the traditions have had their history of of scandal and and and, and problematic behavior and this and that and this regardless of your religious tradition, there's something you, you know, likely to be embarrassed about. Um, well, of course, that's because people are involved. That's right, exactly, because because they're all um, uh, involved, very fallible um, human beings. And um, but that uh, doesn't mean that there uh, uh, there isn't a tremendous amount of thoughtful wisdom uh, from these traditions that we can we can um, we can benefit from. Uh, and certainly having thousands, hundreds and thousands of years of, of reflection and wisdom is better than any one of us just trying to make it up ourselves to try to understand the world and make sense of the various things that happen out there. When I was at the seminary, one of our professors uh, was, was talking about the importance of exploring some of these, these deep, pressing theological questions or crises. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, so that you have something to say when you walk into the hospital room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, to, to explore those things and, and, and understand how to give uh, someone hope or, how, or, or comfort in the midst of a very difficult time and to wrestle with those questions kind of in the abstract when it's, when it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, how do how do you how do you think that might work for the the average person or the average soldier or airman, um, the the average eighteen year old who has enlisted in the military and 
uh, and signed up to serve their their nation or or their state with the National Guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that you know the average eighteen year old um, is um, likely uh, to be vulnerable to um, some of the challenges of the realities of the real world out there, you know, and uh, someone signs up to serve and all of a sudden they're in a different part of the country or world uh, that they know with people uh, that are very different from them, um, maybe both within the, the military, but also, you know, outside of the military where they're located and um, stuff's going to happen. And it's so important that people have a solid sense of who they are, what they're all about, and some guidelines about how do we want to be in the world, you know, from a, from, from a character point of view, from ethics point of view, from a spiritual point of view. And that becomes so important because your, your framework about how you view the world, um, uh, which religion and spirituality really help with, can help to kind of organize and center you when you're dealing with very difficult things. And I think that's so important that um, you, we see uh, frequently people who are very spiritually um, minded, religiously minded, uh, they seem to have a, a calm about them or a, a, a centering about them uh, that can be really awe-inspiring to witness. And often we think of the, you know, the big shots in this area. Let's say, I mean, the big shots, you know, like the, you know, the Mother Teresa's, the Dalai Lama, you know, the Martin Luther King, uh, you know, we think of the Gandhi, you know, Jesus, and we think of these, these kind of big shots. But so often uh, we, in research that we've done on spiritual modeling, people often find these kind of people um, closer to home you know, who never make press. It might be some people in their own families. It could be, um, you know, their own, you know, a pastor or what have you. It could be a, a relative, a grandparent. And they provide models for us. Um, and uh, those models can really help us to basically at the end of the Good Samaritan parable, you know, the message is go and do likewise. Hmm. And, uh, and exactly, you watch some of these models out there who are very centered and organized and kind of have a sense of self and a sense of character and ethics. And, and, uh, and then we say, go be like them, try to be like them as best you can. They, they're providing a template for us. So I think the average 18 year old needs that, particularly when they get plucked out of their local little community and they find themselves halfway across the world, or they find themselves with some people who are really in trauma, traumatic situations. And, uh, you know, their head might start spinning and um, it would uh, probably spin less if they have a good sense of themselves, organized, centered, know who they are, know what they're about, and have models that they can look to to say, you know, that's how I want to be. Well, that's and that's that's fascinating. There were some some knowing smiles and some head nods in the in the room here when you talked about being being plucked up from well from everything you know when you're a young person and now you go off to to basic training. Uh, and now everything is different, and the stress is most probably amplified. Now, of course, certainly there are people that come out of horrible situations for whom the military is a great escape. But for 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 most people, there's 
the, that's quite a quite a culture shock then to, to go into the military. Um, and of course, then we see, you know, we try to we try to provide some mentor mentorship, you know, as we mm-hmm. as we get a little bit more senior in the military to, to people who have done that and and sh- kind of show them the way uh, and having having walked those those paths ourselves. No, right. And I can even think of from my own, you know, my own family background. I mean, you know, my father was uh, in the army uh, and, uh, you know, in the great state of Rhode Island, which is, of course, the very smallest of all the 50 uh, United States. And none, nobody in our family had left the great state until, uh, since they arrived in around the 1870s on both sides of the family. Very provincial. And all of a sudden he finds himself during the Korean War, you know, in, in Colorado building um uh, he was a carpenter, so he was building uh, like um, you know uh, barracks in in the great state of Colorado. And his brother ended up in Hawaii during the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and and uh, plucked from Rhode Island. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in Hawaii, and then Pearl mm. Harbor happens when you're 18 years old. And um, and you know uh, uh, on and on and on. And I'm sure there's so many of those kind of stories where you know you're you're 18 years old, 19 years old, and you know whether your home environment was good or bad, or, or your home community was was a pleasant one or not. Uh, you, all of a sudden, you're halfway either around the world or across the country or wherever, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a situation, <laughs> you know, and 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 when you're in the middle of a situation. Uh, you have to have your head on straight, and uh, that's not easy when you're 18 or 19 years old. And well, I think spirituality and religion can help people to keep the head on straight. Well, that's um, one of the themes within the field of positive psychology, and, and I know you've done some some work there. Uh, is is hope? And at, mm-hmm. at at Kansas University, there was Dr. Charles Snyder who uh, wrote extensively about hope hope theory, and. Yes. And I and I I know we try to do that in the in the military too. And well, and one of the things that I've talked about with with leaders and and soldiers and airmen and others is that we we have to find something that will pull us through the present circumstances. And as a as a leader in the military, I, Dr. Snyder's kind of hope theory really resonated with me because as a leader in the military, uh, even even at the lowest level of leadership. Uh, you could have a, a leader who uh, just says, "Follow me. That's that's our objective. That's where we're going. We can do this. Uh, and let me show you the way. F- follow mm-hmm. me. Follow follow me." Right. So, um, I mean, hope is a very powerful thing. Um, so, how how would you how would you define hope? And and how does uh, spirituality or spiritual practices and and religion help cultivate a sense of hope? Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, I have fond memories of Rick Snyder. He was my training director when I was in graduate school uh, in the early 1980s. And of course, he was he was really quite a character in many ways. Unfortunately, he uh, died before his time uh, in the uh, he was, I believe, in his early 60s when he passed away. But, uh, you know, he was quite a character and he was also uh, someone who really kind of drove home uh, research, quality research when it comes to hope. And uh, I kind of define hope very simply as the, is that kind of belief that tomorrow can be better than today. Hmm. Um, you know, that uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, that tomorrow can be better. And um, 
and uh, there's a great deal of research uh, in hope theory. Uh, you know, Rick certainly was very, um, uh, but one of his students has really carried that on. A fellow at my university now, David Feldman, he does a great deal of, uh, he used to work with Rick, and now he does a lot of uh, that kind of research. And and I think it's really basically that, that, you know, that tomorrow can be better than today. And uh, as you say, when someone maybe uh, says, follow me, you, you, you have to have the belief that somehow uh, that person believes that, too, uh, and that and that they and that they, they, they their path is a path that will ultimately um, be a better path. Uh, and of course, the, the follow me quote is a is a is a popular one from uh, the Gospels, of course, for mm-hmm. example, uh, you know, Jesus would say, follow me. And many, multiple times you hear you hear that from in the Gospels, follow me. And um, and I think um, uh, uh, part of the, the power in that is if you feel that that person who's saying follow me not only has the greater good in mind or is hope for a better tomorrow, but also has your interests in mind, too. That's a powerful um, and, statement on leadership and trust. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry to inter- sorry to interrupt. But. No, 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 no. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think I think it is. I mean, they you have to believe that that person has your best interest in mind too. Well, that's that's one thing I think that we're trying to inculcate or or emphasize with the Army's philosophy on people first. Mm-hmm. And uh, you recently published a blog piece and. It was, he said, my most important insight as a psychotherapist after 40 years, after, after 40 years of practice. And so maybe a spoiler alert for our listeners. You, you say that it's, it's that everyone is sacred and should be treated mm-hmm. as such. And I, and I think that's really another way of saying that uh, people first, that, that, that people matter, that, that others matter. Um, so tell me more about, about that idea that everyone is sacred and should be treated that way. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, to me, that is so important. And I honestly do believe that's the most important insight I have after being in this business for over 40 years, is that people uh, are sacred. And what does that mean? Well, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a couple of things. First off, uh, you know, uh, you, a lot, people in the, from India, for example, often Hindus will, will greet people, uh, people with the saying namaste. And namaste uh, translates apparently uh, to uh, the the sacred in me recognizes the sacred in you, you know, or the the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. I think that's a pretty powerful um, notion that 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 basically there's something sacred in you. I'm recognizing that um, there's something sacred in me, and I think if we really treat people with that kind of namaste kind of way of thinking. Uh, it's hard to treat people badly. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, additionally, now that's come from the Hindu tradition and from the Christian tradition, the rules of St. Benedict is, has this notion of, of, of treating everyone as if they're, you know, Jesus um, himself. Uh, and so it, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, and I think that is powerful, that if you really do see everyone as sort of a brother and a sister, uh, someone who is sacred, you can't help but treat them with respect and compassion and reverence. And I think our world would be, you know, far better if we just had, regardless of people's religious spiritual background, or no background at all, if we treated people with respect, compassion, and reverence, 
I think we'd live in a much better world than we're living in right now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, and I don't think it's, a, I, you know, to be honest, I don't think it's a heavy lift. I really don't think it's a heavy lift. And it also goes back to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the other popular kind of principle of, of the golden rule, you know, treat others as you wish to be treated. You know, it, it's, a, it's, it's simple, but it's powerful. And um, I think we need to do much more of that. Oh, I, I agree completely. And well, because in another piece you mentioned, and, and incidentally, you wrote uh, you wrote this piece pre-pandemic, and you were writing about how to cope with wildfire horrors, mass shootings, and and even politics. And and in that piece, you stress the importance of kindness. Uh, what do, what do you mean by uh, by that? And how does that help a person cope with challenges? Yeah, and you know, frankly, I think kindness can be everyone's um, superpower. <laughs> you, you know, I think everyone can be kind. Everyone can be gracious. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have lots of skill. And um, kindness is a way, uh, I think, for pe- and uh, for people to connect with other people, to uh, to disarm them. It's a way to disarm. You know, sometimes people, you know, come at you uh, uh, with uh, with their, you know, uh, with, with ready for a fight or ready for. Or, or, now I know in the military that that can be literally true, <laughs> yeah. but but just you know just out you know there's been so many times when people when in various roles that I have had uh, where people are ready to um, scream and yell at you to argue at you to um, to uh, um, want to think the worst of you. And I find that um, kindness can be your kind of superpower or secret weapon to um, help them to kind of relax and to have a more thoughtful conversation, a more reasonable dialogue and all of that. And, um, and so I think kindness is one of those things that everybody can do um, under lots of different circumstances. And it goes a long way. And I can think of numerous examples. I mean, even yesterday, I'm in charge of our university's IRB, and, I, and somebody um, wasn't liking their, the, the, the messages that they were getting from uh, um, others about their project, and they wanted to talk to me and uh, probably wanted to chew me out as chair of the IRB for the university. Um, and uh, but, you know, we quickly got into kindness mode and we came up with a great solution that I think the person was very happy with that uh, works well and all's good. And and so I think um, this this can be everybody's superpower. Oh, that's that's great. I might uh, I might borrow that from you uh, with, with with proper attribution, of course. <laughs> It's okay. I'm not. A, I didn't invent kindness. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think I maybe said this at the beginning of the podcast, but with me today is uh, Sergeant First Class Zach Holden and uh, Major Chris Klein from our Public Affairs Office. And so now you both have you both have a, a wealth of military experience, and you've been listening to the conversation. Now, what do you think some of the import is for, for us in in the military culture, uh, or any questions that you have for for Doctor Plant? Yeah, uh, I've got a question, uh, Dr. Plant, Sergeant Holden here. Um, talking about kind of expanding off what you were just saying uh, on treating everybody with kindness and going out into the community and, and giving people the benefit of the doubt, if you will. 
And uh, bringing it back to kind of current affairs with this uh, COVID pandemic we've been facing, and we're in this interesting time now where everything's starting to open back up and uh, people are starting to kind of go back to a, a reality of pre-pandemic existence. Uh, my wife read an article uh, just the other day that kind of uh, struck a chord with me. It was talking about how uh, during the pandemic, uh, the introverts kind of uh, flourished in a way, if you will. They, you know, they, they were the, the, the norm became what they were comfortable with, whereas the extroverts uh, struggled a little bit more uh, coping with all the isolation and, uh, and the, the lockdowns. Over a year and a half, they, they kind of got a little more used to it maybe, where as now that we're opening things back up, both sides of the introverts and the extroverts are starting to have difficulties getting back into uh, uh, more of a public society and, and getting back out into the communities and interacting with individuals. And in the military specifically, uh, as a demographic, as an organization, we've um, there are some statistics out there that show that the military and, and uh, active duty and, and National Guard and reservists are some of the hardest hit uh, demographically due to COVID uh, restrictions and, and, and things where it, uh, just uh, loss of jobs and uh, dealing with uh, pain bills and, and hunger and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my question is, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how, as a society, do, do we reintegrate ourselves back into this open community and, and interact with people in a public manner, whereas it's it's not just uh, face-to-face on a screen, but we're actually in person mm-hmm. and having to uh, go about our daily lives in personal interactions, and specifically with the military. You know, how can we, uh, if you have any thoughts, uh, kind of face those struggles and get back to this sense of normalcy? Right, right. Great question. And you know, this has been on the minds of so many people, and there's and I've um, uh, been so many uh, uh, reports about this. In fact, I in fact, just over the last couple of weeks, I've I've been asked to comment on this very question with CNN, CNNBC, uh, NPR, and a variety of other outlets because people are going back into the community, and the, and it's almost like they've forgotten how to act in public. You know, a lot of this kind of a lot of bad behavior. Uh, or, uh, you know, people, you know, misbehaving on airlines and sporting events and and grocery stores and so forth. And uh, as you said, um, for some people, the pandemic has worked out pretty well. You know, they've been able to work from home comfortably and conveniently and things like that. And some people, it really hasn't worked out so well. You know, they've been, they've lost jobs, lost money. Uh, They've got um, mental health related. We're talking about a mental health tsunami. That's going on with anxiety and depression and alcohol and domestic troubles and so forth. Uh, and, and so certainly whether someone's in the military or not, uh, um, so, uh, a sizable number of uh, percentage of the population is, um, is very um, discombobulated, um, frustrated, um, and, uh, and, and may uh, be easily um, provoked. Uh, out and going back into uh, uh, regular polite society. And so this is where some of these principles, and I think some of these principles we've been talking about with spirituality and so forth, become really important. You know, 
that the, the society uh, and our culture and whatnot, it, there's a lot about it that's kind of a mess. There's a lot that's, that's, that's causing a great deal of frustration. And we know from research um, with the frustration-aggression theory uh, is that when you get frustration and stress, you're going to get aggression. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to be thoughtful about that. And so I think we all got to take a deep breath. We all got to try to do what we can to embrace this notion of sacredness of all, um, kindness, graciousness, um, even with people we don't like, even people that um, are, you know, sc- screaming at us. And uh, and to remember that, uh, you know, not, uh, certainly not everybody's perfect and some people are less perfect than others. But uh, but if we can see this sacredness, this kindness, this graciousness and so forth then hopefully uh, it'll guide us at least to guide us to better interactions. Uh, uh, and all of us can be ambassadors for civility, for um, kindness, for graciousness. And I think we need all the ambassadors we can get uh, as we go back into um, society coming out of the pandemic. Maybe important to understand that uh, if you're getting upset with somebody out in public, that person has been dealing with the same uh, difficulties as you have the past year so uh, uh, room for a little bit of grace is probably uh, more important now than ever i think that's really true and it's also an opportunity to model for others so when we have these bad situations out there when people are misbehaving in the grocery store and on the airplane and whatnot i think if we can you know we've been talking about you know this inoculation for the virus you know if you can get herd immunity by having, let's say, 75 or 80 percent of the population fully vaccinated. Maybe we could do the same thing around these (laughs) principles about kindness and graciousness, because if you're on an airplane and someone's acting like a jerk, (laughs) but you got 80 percent or so of the people on the airplane that are tuned in to, let's say, you know, graciousness, kindness, you know, treat others as you wish to be treated. Well, that maybe they can help to um, 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 uh, to stop the spread of that bad behavior. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think we really need sort of an inoculation, if you will, by having people on board with these with these ideas. A kindness vaccine. Huh. Right, it's a kindness vaccine sounds great. Let's get Dr. Fauci on it. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's fantastic. And I think one of the most difficult challenges of the pandemic in 2020 and 21 and, and all of the other negative experiences that people have had is it, it really caused us to distrust others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and well, and just with that, with the virus itself, um, you, you look at other people wondering if they're going to make you sick. Uh, no, no, that's right. And and that's why it's worrisome, because, you know, we've been given the message over the past year or so that uh, if if people you interact with out there just in the grocery store or wherever, they can kill you <laughs> if you don't have a mask on and you wash your hands and you keep your distance. And um, and, you know, we maybe, you know, we've got 600,000 Americans who have died from the virus in the past year. And I don't know about you, but I've got colleagues who have died. I've got friends Mm -hmm. of friends. I've got a variety of people who I know who have died from COVID and some uh, who did not die, but got very sick. And we've been in this kind of paranoia, if you will, around, well, you know, are you sure people are behaving themselves? You know, are they doing all the things they're supposed to be doing? 
And so that paranoia uh, is really um, maybe baked in to uh, our DNA, if you will, uh, during the past year. And, um, and as I think President Reagan had said back in the day, uh, trust but verify. And uh, you might want to you know, you, you want to trust people, but you also want to see their vaccination card, too. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I would like to uh, do a question. This is uh, Major Chris Klein. Um, one of the things and I'll predicate my question uh, that, I, you know, I'm someone of faith. But um, one of the challenges I always see uh, the chaplain has the um, challenge of satisfying everyone's uh, spiritual needs, regardless of their faith uh, in the in the National Guard Army, uh, whatnot. And uh, I was like, wow, that's that's a huge uh, task for him. And uh, maybe he can uh, comment on that a little bit later. But uh, for when we run across a soldier or someone in our organization that isn't someone of faith, and where do I point them to, like, the empirical, like, uh, hard data, if you will, of the kindness and the benefits that that can uh, produce in their life. Uh, so if I had to come out with someone that had no faith and was, uh, and I needed to do it on a scientific level and also on a level for like the lay person, uh, if you could get a easy like uh, plug and play answer to that, if there is one. Yeah, no, that's a great question because, you know, lots of times if people do come from a faith tradition, you might be able to, even if it's not your particular faith tradition, you can kind of point to it uh, as a way of helping them kind of um, treat others as you wish to be treated. And so, I mean, think all of the religious, you know, it's interesting, Karen Armstrong, who's kind of a well-known writer about religion and so forth, uh, and a former uh, Catholic nun, uh, in her book, The Great Transformation, where she talks about the history of all the major religious traditions, she concludes that at, at their best, uh, the, uh, the, all of the traditions, whether they're talking about Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, that at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's all about compassion at the end of the day. And she does a great job kind of um, unpacking that notion. And... Um, but some people don't have a religious tradition or they're, or they're or avid atheists or something like that. And so then I think we have to turn to the secular psychological research to, to help them. So, for example, uh, the secular psychological research would say, look, you add frustration to stress, you're going to get aggression. If you want to minimize aggression, you're going to blow the frustration. And if you can get people to laugh, you can joke around, you can get, they can feel like you understand them. Well, you know, that's going to bring down uh, frustration and therefore bring down uh, potential aggression. Uh, Where you can have some kind of, the secular research would tell us that if you can find something in common with somebody, you know, oh, you like this kind of food, I like that kind of food too. Or, oh, you're from this, this, uh, this part of the country, I'm from that part of the country too. That, that you can kind of um, get connection and more um, relatedness if you can find something that you have in common, even if it's just something kind of pulled out of the, out of the air. Oh, you know, you come from the same part of the country or you like, you know, toma- eating tomatoes and mozzarella too or whatever the thing is. So, um, so commonalities, lowering frustration. There's also a lot of secular psychological research that talks about people mirroring 
people tend to mirror behavior of others. So in other words, if you present yourself with a smile, most people would smile back. If you present yourself in a frustrated uh, look, uh, they'll do the same. So there's a great deal of kind of research, secular, that speaks mirror the behavior that you want to see in the other person. So there's a lot of that kind of secular psychological research that we can point to uh, that, that can help us to see the benefits of things like kindness and stuff like that, um, uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with religion or spirituality. Oh, thank you. Uh, from like a nugget of information. So thank you. Yeah, that mirroring, that's a, that's a great technique for, for de-escalating uh, almost any situation, whether you're talking about a, a relationship or a, or a situation at work. Right. And also, oh, uh, you know, we also talk about, by the way, observational learning, which is uh, basically, you know, if you have attractive models that you, you know, you you observe, uh, people are more likely to act as they do. So if there are attractive models in your group uh, and you can point to um, people kind of want to be like those attractive models. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why people you know, follow the fashions of the Hollywood celebrities or, or things like that. Or they may model um, behavior of their favor, favorite sports star or, or, or what have you. And uh, so observational learning is another secular psychological theory that's very, very popular and can be helpful in this regard. Sure. Dr. Plant, with the few minutes that we have remaining, uh, I'll shift gears just a little bit. This episode is likely to air closer to the holiday season. And that was kind of the first piece that introduced me to your work was about the holidays. And and you wrote a, a short piece you called the, the holidays can be an opportunity for great hope. Why do, why do you say that? Yeah, you know, because when we look at the holidays around the end of the year, you know, uh, if you think of them from a psychological standpoint, and let's say we're talking about Christmas, we're talking about Hanukkah, talking about Kwanzaa, uh, we're talking about the new year, even though uh, they, on the surface, they seem like very different holidays. You know, Christmas is different than, than Hanukkah, for example, and, and, and both are different than, let's say, Kwanzaa or, and, and so forth. But, but if we, we look at those holidays from a psychological point of view, what they all do in common is basically say there's light in the darkness. There's light, there's hope. There's light in the darkness. And so, for example, in, in, in Christmas, we have this story, you know, of Jesus in some manger in Bethlehem with a couple of very, you know, poor parents. And somehow there's hope there. Um, and if there's anybody, there's probably no one ultimately that's been more influential on the planet uh, than Jesus um, coming out of some manger with a couple of peasant Jewish parents uh, in, the, in, in the middle of kind of nowhere. There's hope, you know, in, in, in that darkness. Uh, in, in Hanukkah, you know, not enough oil to, you know, to celebrate, you know, not enough oil uh, to light. Uh, uh, and yet the, miraculously, you know, a day's worth of oil lasts eight days and lighting candles for eight days during the very darkest time of the year. Uh, Koans are also kind of lighting candles that represent certain character traits, char uh, positive character traits. Uh, during, I believe, seven days of the year. And, um, and new, the new year is all about a fresh start, you know, uh, a, fr a fresh start for everybody. So, so the holidays, I think, are, regardless of someone's uh, spiritual religious tradition or not, they're basically saying there is hope, uh, 
there is light in the darkness during the coldest, darkest time of the year, at least in the northern hemisphere, uh, there is hope. There is there is hope. That's that's that that's what motivates me in, in my vocation. Uh, so I think I think that's a great place to to wrap it up, Doctor Plant. Thank you so much for your time today, and, and God bless you in in your work at the University of Santa Clara and and well and, and the various platforms where uh, you can kind of share your message. Well, thank you, and I and I also want to thank you, all three of you, for um, your service. Uh, it's 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 um, uh, uh, such an honorable. A way to be in the world uh, to serve our, you know, country in the military, uh, and I don't think the military ever get is uh, the the kind of appreciation uh, and ongoing appreciation that it um, always deserves. Uh, that uh, you folks sacrifice for the greater good, and uh, it's um, really impressive that you do so. So I thank you for your service. Well, th- thank you, Dr. Plant, and well, with the, the sacredness of other people, it's, it, it's worth it. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.